Good evening and welcome. My name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, the CPAC conference in Sydney on the weekend, which was broadcast live by ADH TV and featured all of our regular hosts as speakers, was a triumph for many reasons. Let's start with the fact that it could be held at all. But the fact that we've been prevented by law from having gatherings of this sort for the best part of three years shows just how dispiriting these times have been. Because it's hard to practice freedom and enterprise locked up in your house and with your business closed on account of a virus. And with our country 200 years on from being a penal settlement, once more turned into Prison Island. That was Tony Abbott. He received the second of several standing ovations during the weekend. The first one went to the opening speaker, Jacinta Nampajinpa Price, who was typically amusing and robust. I am an Australian Conservative a testament to what it means to stand armed with the truth and to fight with the interests of all Australians in my heart. We are here. We have not run. We have not been silenced. We're not going anywhere. And we didn't go anywhere. We were thoroughly entertained and informed with some of the best political debate in Australia over two days. It was a marvellous weekend. CPAC's American chairman, Matt Schlapp, defined early on what the conference was actually about. It's because there are these powers that be uh, around the globe that are trying to drown out your voices. And they're trying to say you don't matter. And they're trying to say that your religion is an old-fashioned thing that's filled with hate. And they're trying to say that your love of country should be supplanted with your love for global causes like global climate change or gender confusion or whatever the latest thing is. And CPAC just started, and Jay Aiba is here from Japan, who's the chairman of CPAC Japan. And uh, we have these people from around the globe who are saying, no, we're not a political party. We're separate, we're separate from that uh, kind of power structure. We're a nonprofit, but we can help millions of people rise up and say no to all this. Matt, Shat, Matt, Matt Schlapp mentioned Jay Aiba from uh, Japan uh, CPAC in that little uh, grab there. I actually interviewed Jay Aida during a break at one stage and asked him if the uh, Japanese were particularly obedient, as they usually are, as their culture during the COVID lockdown, and whether they regretted it. Jay Aiba replied, that the Japanese, you can push and push and push the Japanese, but eventually if you push too far, they're gonna break out the samurai sword. It kind of uh, epitomized the fighting spirit that was everywhere at CPAC on the weekend. Now, former Extinction Rebellion spokeswoman Zeon Lights exuded a characteristic that all honest people embrace when they learn that they have been misled, providing an insight to what it's like to be a young person in the grip of a terrifying environmental cult. I had a fear response. I was young, I was scared, and I believed them. And I went to anti-nuclear protests, and I wrote articles about how 
I didn't write about demonic creatures, but I wrote that it was bad, and I was wrong. Like, I was completely wrong. And now, everything that I do now is trying to undo that damage, because I'm in this movement where people say, climate action now, and then they block the biggest thing that could help with their cause, which is building nuclear power stations. I was wrong. How often do you hear that these days? Fellow environmentalist and best-selling author Michael Schellenberger, a friend of Xeon Lights, explained the catastrophic cost of battery power. What about the batteries? Well, my friend Zion Lights just said the batteries are prohibitively expensive. Just to get a sense of it, it costs about three quarters of a trillion dollars to back up the US electricity grid for just four hours. We don't need to back up the grid for four hours. We need to back it up if you're relying on solar and wind for weeks or months, because there are periods of time where there's no sunlight and no wind, including often at night. Californians, <laughs> funny thing about night. The other funny thing about night is that's when you need to turn the lights on. These are all issues that concern Queensland Senator Matt Canavan. But that's not the only reason he argues for them in the National Parliament. But I've only got convictions because I meet people like you on the street and who say they support what I say. And so I ignore those lefties, I ignore my Wikipedia page and, and I do what I think you want and what the people I represent want in Canberra. And we've had, you know, the, today, it is sometimes easy to get a little bit dispirited because we have faced very challenging times around the world and we've heard about that today. But I want to start with some good news today, some good news that happened this week. This week, myself and uh, Senator Alex Antich, Senator Jacinta Price and, and six other senators introduced legislation to remove the ban on nuclear energy in Australia. Melbourne filmmaker Topher Field recalled what it was like to live under the jackboot of Dan Andrews during the COVID lockdown. As the pandemic wore on, we saw arrest after arrest of those who spoke up and especially of those who protested. As I continued speaking out, as I kept publicly declaring that I was going to protests and calling for others to join me, I knew that it was only a matter of time before they came for me. And as it turns out, they came for a lot of people. The Institute of Public Affairs Education spokeswoman, Bella Debrera, explained just what our schools have become. Our schools are no longer schools. They're state-sanctioned indoctrination camps where your children are being inducted into the climate change cult, the radical gender theory cult, and a cult of nihilistic self-loathing. All in all, it was a diverse, entertaining and often extremely alarming lineup of passionate speakers and a passionate audience. I hope you can join me at next year's CPAC. Well, during much of the COVID pandemic, thousands of Australians were locked out of their own country, prevented from coming home lest they bring with them what turned out to be a virus with a lower than 1% infection fatality rate. The media didn't seem to care. These people were, to most editors, out of sight and out of mind for their readers. But recently the media has become concerned about the welfare of a different type of expatriate. The same journalists and editors who showed little or no concern for law-abiding Australians abandoned by their own country 
are now writing stories about Australians who did the opposite. When Islamic State attempted to create a caliphate in the middle of a civil war in Syria in 2014, dozens of Australians went off to join them. It was obviously a dream come true for some of them. The peace and prosperity of democratic Australia was nothing compared to the prospect of a new society ruled by theocratic murderers. That society was eventually crushed. Now those Australian expatriates find themselves on the losing side and in jail in some cases, and they've rediscovered their Australian patriotism. Ellen Wynette, a journalist at The Australian, said this morning, quote, Syria has asked countries to take their citizens home, take responsibility for them, try them if required, rehabilitate them if not, but either way, take them home and deal with them on home soil, unquote. My next guest, Spectator Australia writer Alexandra Marshall, says there are several flaws in this argument. Alexandra, welcome. Having me. Alexandra, that journalist from The Australian presents the re repatriation as having two outcomes, either a trial or rehabilitation. Now let's take the first outcome, shall we? A trial. Is it possible to try a repatriated Australian for crimes committed eight years ago on a battlefield in the middle of a third world nation? Just before I answer that question, the first time the Australian tried this, I think they ran about 15 articles over one weekend trying to bring the ISIS brides home and their children. And they got the exact same response the last time as they did this time, which was, to put it as politely as physically possible, bugger off. Because Australians do not want anything to do with terrorists who left to fight for a foreign power. But your question about whether or not you can try them, well, we've already been told by the government that no, they won't be trying pretty much any of these ISIS brides or any of the other people they bring back home because they don't have any evidence. The crimes were committed in another country. They can't investigate them. So no, they're just going to pretty much have a catch and release program where they catch them in Syria and then release them into Australia. So to suggest that they might be tried when they come home is pretty much deceptive. False. 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 I mean, they've already said they're not going to. Okay, let's look at the second potential outcome, re rehabilitation. This is based on the assumption that if we hold out the olive branch, we will receive gratitude in return. Is this what usually happens in these situations, Alexandra? Well, there are two questions there. The first is, can you rehabilitate somebody? And the second is, do they deserve to be rehabilitated? So the second one, no, they don't deserve a second chance. They knew exactly what they were doing. These were adults who left the country to fight terror, to hurt uh, and traumatise and injure law-abiding Australians and other allies around the world. So no, they don't deserve the opportunity to start with. The second is, can you? Now, we have to remember that this is a religion. So for those of you who are religious watching, would you be able to be deconverted from your religion by the state? Is that a reasonable expectation? And we know from experience that almost nobody gets rehabilitated from this kind of ideology. There's a few maybe who change their mind, but it's such a minuscule percentage. The more likely occurrence is that they will come here and start radicalizing more people to their cause and we will have our new homegrown terror. It is a ridiculous, dangerous and reckless proposition. Well, in an editorial, the Australian itself said, quote, Australia now has the chance to assert the strength of the nation's values by doing the decent thing by these citizens in accepting them back with a firm hand, unquote. 
Well, where were these values when law-abiding Australians were locked out of the country during the pandemic? Well, they've already said they're not really going to follow them or watch them particularly closely. So they're not going to have a firm hand. What they're going to do is put these people in the community next to peaceful citizens and hope for the best, really, is what they're saying. But what frustrates me is the Australian and other publications, they put all these little photographs of these poor children uh, as the lead image and say, oh, you know, please bring these kids home. But a reporter from Europe actually went to the camp where our Australians are being held and she was confronted by a group of basically toddlers to small six-year-olds who threatened to kill her for not wearing a hijab. Now, these children are already indoctrinated into this ideology. Now, if the parents are saying we want to come home and, and live peacefully with Western values, why are their children spouting such hateful, violent rhetoric already. They got it from somewhere and they've been in the camp all their lives, so they must have got it from the parents who now want to come home. And the last thing that I will add there is the only reason that these people want to come home is because they lost the war. Not because they're sorry, not because they've had a change of heart, but because they don't have all the, the trappings of a terrorist civilization. And so they want to try and come back to Australian welfare. And Australia says, no, if you leave the country to fight for foreign power, you are not our problem anymore. Indeed. And what's being left out of this equation is the people, the law-abiding Australians, you know, who are faithful to Australia. Why should we have to pay the price for these people who went overseas and fought a foreign war? Anyway, let's talk about the Republic. Is Peter, Fitz Peter Fitzsimons has just uh, stepped down, as you may have heard, from uh, the chair of the Australian Republican movement. Is he, is he admitting defeat, Alexandra? I'm so devastated. It was such a tragedy over the weekend to find out that he had decided to, to leave. He called himself a drum and that it was now time for a flute, which is a, an extremely strange way to announce your departure. He wants there to be more diverse in young forces. But what I think he's saying is he saw the outpouring of love and affection for the crown and just went tapped out. I'm gone like that's I mean, what are you going to do? Uh, he, and then he said something bizarre that he'd always envisioned that he wouldn't take it to an actual referendum. What was the point of being leader of a republic for a referendum if you have zero intention of actually carrying through? It's such a typical lefty mentality of create an enormous amount of rubble and chaos and then walk away and let somebody else clear it up. So uh, I'm thrilled and also upset. Uh, I think we'll mourn his loss for a while. We will. He's He's been the, an endless uh, supply of of amusement, but I'm sure that will continue because he still retains his newspaper column. But speaking of who's uh, picking up the pieces, Craig Foster, the former uh, Socceroo, is the short odds favourite to take over the ARM. He's on record saying he doesn't like Australia very much, at least the way it is at the moment. He recently said that racism, our racism, I should say, is a, quote, festering sore on the national psyche that manifests in dehumanisation and mistreatment of innocent people and ongoing Indigenous disadvantage. Alexandra, will someone who believes that, believes that have much luck uniting Australians to change their constitution? Well, they're already fighting as a movement about whether or not they support the voice or don't support the voice because they want conservatives to vote for the republic. But the one thing that I will point out really clearly to conservatives who maybe don't like the crown is that for a president, you are going to have a political figure. 
they and they won't be a conservative political figure. You won't have President Tony Abbott. You're going to have President Kevin Rudd or President Malcolm Turnbull or one of these activists from the uh, Australian of the Year Awards, and they will be there to make politically biased decisions. And so they provide absolutely no protection against a prime minister who's out of control. And the entire role of the uh, president in this case, who is replacing the governor general, is to protect the people. And that cannot happen in a politicised organisation. And the new leader, and also the was he the shadow minister for the Republic, Thistlethwaite, they are all political figures. And that's what this is, a politician's republic. And we know how those end. Look at Sri Lanka, where we had the president running off to go and hide on a boat somewhere as people storm the presidential palace, let me add. They live like kings. And that is what Australia will give ourselves. It won't be like Queen Elizabeth, who was there for the people above politics. So be well, warned. Well, as I said here a few weeks ago, if they want a, if they want a woke head of state, they just got one. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I don't mean, know what their problem is. Oh, Liz Truss tried so hard yesterday to caution in the most polite way possible, uh, the new King Charles III and his son, the Prince of Wales, not to go attending COP27, which is, of course, a United Nations loving fest. And hopefully they're getting the, the message. Hopefully, yes. Now, here's a cool image. It's Kanye West and Candace Owen at a fashion show in Paris wearing shirts that say White Lives Matter. Rolling Stone equated this to the KKK and the Aryan Renaissance Society, whatever that is. Alexandra, is it racist to say white lives matter? So the problem is this is a reaction to a racist movement. It was a black supremacist movement called Black Lives Matter, run by self-declared Marxists who saw the streets of America and other streets descend into racially charged violence. So hence the, the uh, White Lives Matter slogan came up. And it doesn't matter how many, like if there's random organisations of people who use it, the, uh, the mainstream idea was that opposition to the Marxist Black Lives Matter violent protests that were also destroying people's cultural heritage. I think about a dozen people were killed and billions of dollars of damage were done. So it is a, it's a response to that racial hatred that Black Lives Matter started. And so that's why he was wearing White Lives Matter. He's a little bit of a contrarian. He likes to catch a bit of attention. And, you know, this is his way of saying, I'm anti this other movement. It's not as controversial as people think it is, uh, but it is showing that people are not entirely on board with uh, the woke left brigade at all times. Yeah, but the response from the media uh, has been that this is a racist thing to say, that it is racist to say that white lives matter, hasn't it? Of course it is, because they have built their entire narrative on white is bad. I mean, it, the media themselves are, have been so racist in the last five years that for them to even admit that white lives matter, which is a pretty generic statement, uh, they can't do it without admitting the what happened beforehand, because they went all in line behind a movement that was racist, that did kill people, that was destructive. And they don't want to acknowledge that. So they've got like a little wall there going, that didn't happen. Anybody who opposes what happened must be racist. And that's, it's superficial. That's all it is. I like how the media keeps comparing these, these incidents to things like the KKK and the Aryan Renaissance Society, <laughs> which, I mean, it, it's almost sounded like Germans visiting, you know, Rome to visit, to look at artworks or something. but. These these are same with um, 4chan and and things like that. I, I mean, you and I are conservatives. We're of the centre right and and probably lean a little bit more to the right than most people. 
But I don't know about you, but I never meet anyone from the KKK or the Aryan Renaissance Society. So even if Kanye West was aligning himself with fringe racist groups, it still wouldn't be a threat because those racist groups barely exist. Well, it's the same thing as saying drinking milk makes you a racist. I mean, that's sort of what they tried. The simple truth is this is a debating technique and a very cheap one at that because in every civilization you can always find a few crazy radical people and all they do is go and find them uh, doing something the same as someone they don't like and go, well, if that person's done it, then the whole general population is guilty of the same crime. But we could just as easily do it and say, well, I mean, was it Hitler? He was an environmentalist, right? Therefore, if you're an environmentalist, you were literally Hitler. Uh, and that's all it is. I mean, it's so easily proven false by that. The problem is that conservatives never, never bother to call out these cheap tactics for what they are, which is ludicrous. Well, speaking about debating tactics, we've just had a debate fest <laughs> oh, on the wow. weekend. We were both at CPAC in Sydney on the weekend. What was the big takeout for you? The big takeout is that the conservative movement, the people want to see a conservative movement and a strong conservative movement come forward. Uh, and a movement that centres around the old school liberal values as stated, but that the Conservative Party, particularly the leading Liberal Party, needs to learn some lessons from the people who are there. And perhaps before they can go forward, they might want to try apologising for their previous behaviour. So apologising for endorsing the lockdowns and the border closures? Apologising for basically either allowing serious abuses of human rights to happen without any protest or for being the people in charge when those abuses were happening. I mean, there was a lot of discussion saying, well, Daniel Andrews was bad, but I'm sorry, Perrottet wasn't much better if you look at what he actually did in policy and legislation. And as for our prime minister, he pretty much just tapped out early on and said, not really interested in uh, trying to lead us through uh, with some human rights and values intact. So that's a big problem. Well, I think that would be confirmed by the fact that both Tony Abbott and a video message from John Howard received uh, warm, if not warm applause, if not standing ovations. And Dominic Perrottet, unfortunately, at a conservative conference in his own city, was mildly booed. So there's got to be a message in there somewhere. Well, the biggest question people are asking is this is a conservative action conference. The conservative parties are, are desperate to get back into power. They've been losing ground. And who wasn't there? The leader of the Conservative Party federally. There was no Peter Dutton. He did not give an address and he absolutely should have been there. And Perrottet, the leader of the state, wasn't there either. The only input that Perrottet had was basically demanding police protection money uh, for the event. <laughs> and so it's not a good look for Conservatives. They should be leading this charge and embracing their own voters and, more importantly, listening to their voters. Well said. Thank you so much, Alexandra Marshall. It is a pleasure to be here. That's Alexandra Marshall of The Spectator Australia. You can read her stuff every day on The Spectator's website. Well, there are plenty of issues for young politically minded people in Australia to get agitated about these days. Indigenous children are being raped by their drunken uncles in outback Australian towns where the consumption of alcohol was recently made legal again. Young people are dying of heart conditions brought on by the biggest and most profitable multinational vaccination campaign in history. 
And China is building enough coal-fired power stations to, so some people believe, destroy the planet. But what got the young left in Sydney animated on the weekend? Conservatives peacefully and intelligently talking to each other. That's right, the Conservative Political Action Conference in Sydney was a magnet for a rowdy and it must be said remarkably homogenous white rabble who were either indignant about the issues being discussed at CPAC or desperate for the attention they knew they'd get if they gathered outside the conference and shouted slogans. The protesters got the confrontation they wanted, storming the doors of the conference and being stopped by the police. This allowed them to yell and scream like petulant children. The most ironic of them all was this young man who would have realised just how wrong his placard was if, instead of storming the doors and being stopped by the cops, he bought a ticket to the event and mingled peacefully with the supposedly white supremacists inside. He would have seen an entertaining welcome to country by Indigenous performers, a rendition of the national anthem, and a roster of speakers that included Jacinta Nampajimpa Price, Warren Mundine, British hip-hop star Zuby, and British Indian environmentalist Zeon Lights. And if he wanted to see a bit of confrontation, he would have seen that too, late on the Sunday afternoon, when comments from a few Liberal Party panellists provoked booing from the crowd. But why engage with people and calmly discuss issues when you could gather in a crowd and scream abuse instead? Clearly, all these kids want is the moral high ground, and they know that they are never going to reach it by engaging in a civil, reasonable debate. Well, after all that, my next guest is the CPAC Australia co-founder and national director, Andrew Cooper. Andrew, welcome. Oh, thank you, Fred. Thank you, and good to see you. Uh, only a day or two after the event. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it was a great weekend. Firstly, it's not easy to put together an event like this, partly because the centre-right and conservative demographics are quite disjointed at the moment. How do you decide, Andrew, what to put in and what to leave out of an event like this? Uh, well, look, it's, um, it is disjointed, and, and the purpose or one of the one of the purposes and mission of CPAC is to not be party, uh, party specific, but to really focus on the values that are the uniting forces of most of these parties on the sort of right and the libertarian side. And those, uh, you know, values centre around kind of uh, freedom for the individual and, and freedom, uh, free enterprise. And uh, most of the parties do subscribe to those values. Uh, of course, though, each of those parties are trying to make their own uh, particular points, and it is difficult sometimes to structure a, uh, uh, a uh, speaker lineup that uh, makes everyone happy. But you know what? The purpose of CPAC is not to try to make everyone happy. The purpose of CPAC is to try to uh, create uh, an environment where people can discuss in friendly terms the ideas that are brought up at CPAC. And I think, I think in the main, we achieved that uh, really, really well on the weekend. Yeah, I agree. I imagine one of the difficulties is for it to be a political event. I mean, the P stands for political, but to try to minimise the, the sort of political tribalism of it all, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I mean, um, 
Look, in the in the main, I think I think the feeling you get at uh, CPAC, and certainly the feedback I've got, and literally hundreds of messages, is that uh, is that uh, that tribalism goes across the whole conference. It's not there's not a bunch of uh, there's not a lot of people there in their own little silos looking to squeeze out others. It, it, there is this feeling of fraternity, I think, at at CPAC, and particularly now, right? The, the feeling is at the moment is that the the left are kind of on the march. They're taking over. And so my takeaway from the uh, from the uh, CPAC conference is that there's a lot of disaffected people with the state of the nation, the state of the nation. And sometimes, you know, sometimes they're confused about what the path is, where the which path to take to go forward. But the main thing is that, that we discuss these ideas, we distill these ideas, and hopefully we can agree on a way that we can take the nation forward. Yeah. What was the highlight of the event for you, Andrew? Oh, for me, uh, to be honest, uh, I thought the opening ceremony was uh, controversial in, in, in a way, but I, the whole overarching message was that uh, despite wherever you come from, we are one, we are all together, and then Jacinta came on after that and just smashed it out of the park. Uh, and I think, uh, I think uh, you know, she epitomises the hope that all of us have on the broad right uh, all of those that believe in those ideals we just discussed before, I think she kind of epitomises that. And uh, I think we all have uh, great hopes for where she'll end up in her political journey. And as you know, Fred, she did win the inaugural uh, Freedom and Hope Award. And yep. uh, she was very uh, she was, became very emotional about that because you, you know she's a fighter. You know, uh, those that know Jacinta know the, uh, the rubbish she, she's got to put up with from the politicised left from the authoritarians that try to drag her down. And for her to, you know, stand up there and show us how much it meant to her to be recognised in this way, I thought was just fantastic. Well, it was good for her to come on so soon, first speaker, come on so soon after the uh, Welcome to Country. I imagine you debated at length whether or not to hold a Welcome to Country. And uh, it was, I must say, a very good one. I, for, that's coming from someone who's absolutely sick and tired of them, I gotta say. But were you expecting any blowback or was it just to shut up the left who think you're a bunch of racists? What was the purpose? Well, the purpose was that, you know, Warren, our chairman, is an Indigenous man. We've uh, had uh, Jacinta, uh, you know, a black conservative of some note. Uh, we've got others. Jill Lundgren from, uh, Lindgren from uh, Queensland Senator was in the room. There's many others. The left think they own black people. Right, and they're coming to us all the time saying they don't own. And the other thing, they left. What the left do is they take our words and they take some of our actions and they politicise them. Now these black uh, conservatives uh, that are involved with CPAC, they wanted to do a welcome to country, and they wanted to show the left that you don't own them. And they, if they want to do the welcome to country, then we should be free to, to listen to that and watch it. And I thought they blew it out of the park. And I think the message of that sense to the left is. You don't own black people and the welcome to country shouldn't politi be politicised in the manner in which the left want it to be politicised. And you know what? I've had very little negative feedback about that. And you know what? The other thing too, Fred, I love the sound of bagpipes, but I love the sound of a didgeridoo. <laughs> Good, man. Well, I'd, I'd say if there was any subtle difference uh, on the weekend to the, to the uh, welcomes, welcome to countries that we are used to is that... When the left do it, there's this, there is a political undertone. Uh, ironically, on Saturday at a political event, there was no political undertone. It was a unifying uh, little ceremony to start the event. Yeah, and that, that was deliberate, 
Fred was absolutely deliberate. We wanted to show uh, conservatives that uh, that it shouldn't be politicised, and we had uh, we had that, and it was quickly followed by the national anthem. Um, and uh, the idea was that we are one Australia, and Jacinda, of course, reinforced that coming on immediately afterwards. And, yeah. and blowing us all away with the power of her speech. But that was the deliberate thing, right? Don't let the left divide us. Aboriginal Australia are with us as well, many of them. Most of them, Warren will tell you, they're with us, right? And we also know that the damage and the concern that most of us hold about what's happened in the Abor- some of the remote Aboriginal communities, they have been perpetrated by the left. Indeed. And we, we know that... We know that the solutions to those communities is going to come. It's going to come out of uh, you know the uh, economic philosophy and the personal responsibility that are espoused by us on the right. And so we shouldn't run away from this. We shouldn't allow us to be politicised on this thing. We should actually be proud about the fact that we have the solutions and we now have the spokespeople to actually take this forward and help those communities eventually. Well, well said. What did you learn about the conservative side of politics on the weekend, Andrew? Ah, that's a good question, Fred. I think um, what I've learned is there's a yearning, there's, there's, there's a yearning to, to want to do something. Uh, there's this feeling that, uh, uh, that we're in a bit of trouble, to be perfectly honest. And I, I get this feeling, I, I certainly know our American friends feel this and Matt Schlapp and Matt Whitaker kind of alluded to this in their, in their speeches. Uh, and I've travelled to CPACs around the world and there is this feeling that there is this global kind of coordination to... Uh, uh, to wind back some of the things that we take for granted. And so there's this yearning at CPAC uh, to, to work out what to do and, and, and we're hoping that, uh, you know, we can be part of the mix of what to do. And, and, and there's also another thing. I think, I think there's a lot of people at CPAC that love the Liberal Party, but they, don't, they, they, they feel like the Liberal Party isn't loving them back at the moment. <laughs> uh, and then when I say at the moment, I guess I'm thinking of the last few years, the last couple of years, I don't think this feeling extends to the new... Opposition leader, I think uh, it's it's really to do with some of the historical uh, leaders of the uh, of the Liberal Party, and I do get this sense that um, there is some some up, upset at the Liberal Party, but I do have this feeling that it's it's because it's like it's like if your uh, if your child does something uh, that you don't like or you disagree with or you're disappointed in your child, it hurts even more because you love your child, and I think I think there's some people that really want to see the Liberal Party get back on track and. Uh, and uh, if they do, then I think, you know, the CPAC community will swarm to them. And well, I, really do I hope think they that take that's, that's a very good point you're making. And uh, if there was a takeaway for me, it is that our demographic is at a fork in the road. Do they follow or try to revive the Liberal Party or do they all scatter, you know, into uh, One Nation and, and uh, Lib Dems and so on? You know, not that those parties are the, are the lesser alternative, I, you know. I don't think I have the answers, but there was a moment while we're on the topic, there was a a moment on the uh, afternoon of the second day when former Liberal Senator Nick Minchin unwisely um, had a crack at the audience. He said that the Liberal Party doesn't need reforming, that, uh, that it was free to be reformed from within if only people became members. Now, there was a lot of opposition to that and Nick Minchin uh, unwisely um, uh, responded badly to the boos that he got. 
What I found unfortunate in that moment, Andrew, was that Nick Minchin in his political career was exactly the kind of politician we want now. He was labelled as a climate right. denialist and everything. He was from the right of our side. So uh, what, what's your advice to people like Nick Minchin and people who are uh, followers of our side of politics? What, what, how do we kiss and make up? Well, I, I, look, my, my, my reading of that circumstance is that there's, there's, there's a little bit of, uh, there was a little bit of anger in the room um, uh, around the recent circumstances. Now, those that know, are any follower of, of, of um, political life at all would know that Nick Minchin is not the problem with Australia. Nick Minchin is a warrior in an extremely successful Howard government, possibly the best one in living memory. And... Uh, and uh, Nick Minchin is, uh, you know, represents a lot of what I think most conservatives want uh, the rest of them to be. Uh, I think probably there was just a moment there where there was a failure to read the uh, room uh, and uh, the room exploded and didn't give Nick enough time to explain what he meant about, you know, the uh, Liberal Party needing reforming. Now, I think what he was going to go on and say was that, the, you know, the, the belief system, the philosophy underlying the Liberal Party uh, doesn't need reforming. That the uh, the Liberal Party may have, and I'm 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 not I don't mean to put words into Nick's mouth, but I I suspect this is kind of what he meant. But there's an opportunity to get into the Liberal Party and recraft it in that sort of the image of that philosophy and that values that it originally stand for. Unfortunately, the room kind of exploded at uh, at Nick because I think they possibly misinterpreted where he was going with his comments. So. What it says to me is, I said, the communication is really important, right? Now, I wasn't happy with that response with Nick Minchin. I think um, uh, I did try to calm that room down and there's got to be a respectful discussion, particularly amongst uh, cousins and brothers and sisters and friends. We're all friends. We're all from the same family. And just like all families, we may not agree with each other, but we've got to keep our family together. And splintering it uh, by being disrespectful, um, to me, uh, doesn't gather people up, it just drives people away and we need to avoid that at all costs. Yeah, I think the crowd at the at the time ignored the fact that Nick agreed with them that the past nine years had been disappointing, you know. So, you know, Nick, Nick deserves yeah. more credit than uh, he, he got in that particular moment. But one on a more oh, positive note, yeah, go on, Andrew. No, I was just going to say, I mean, did you watch the Battleground uh, Melbourne uh, live documentary that uh, that was put on, and that was a that was a live performance by people affected personally by the draconian, uh, you know, lockdowns and mandates in Victoria that Dan Andrews perpetrated on them. There was a lot of emotion in the room by the time uh, Nick and the others came on 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 stage, and I think that exacerbated the response that Nick received. And I think you're it was right. Yeah. Unfortunate programming on our behalf, and I apologise to to all that that was probably not quite the, the right spot for that discussion, which was supposed to be a well-meaning discussion. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's, there's a lot of, uh, lot of, lot of little um, traps in, in setting the agenda for these things, because you're right, Battleground Melbourne was incredible. That presentation, I mean, the movie itself is intense, but the presentation, yeah. seeing those four people live on stage, was incredibly yeah. Uh, moving. And yeah, there was some pretty intense feeling in the room at the time. But that brings me to my next question. I mean, this is one of the great mm -hmm. things about being on our side of politics, Andrew. 
What a diverse lineup you had. You know, we, you know, the left likes to think they're into diversity. Talk about a diverse lineup and entertaining. It, we, we are the more entertaining side of politics, aren't we? I think so. I think so. We can have fun. Uh, and uh, we don't, we, there was, like, there was one session for about three minutes where there was a bit of upset and a bit of anger, right? Most of it was just laughter and fun and backslaps and uh, hugs in the end. And uh, so, I mean, I had an absolute ball and, uh, you know, I was stressing about every little moment of it, but I just enjoyed myself thoroughly. And, Fred, I saw you there many times and you looked to have a pretty, pretty broad smile on your face too. So I think you might have enjoyed it a little bit too. Oh, well, we were all, we're all among our own and, and uh, free to speak our minds, which is not always the case. Um, just quickly, why, I, I know this is a bit of a, uh, you know, maybe a tricky question, but Dominic Perrottet, you know, it, conservative conference in his own city, why didn't he turn up? Oh, I don't know why he didn't turn up. I mean, I think, I think in fairness to Dom, he's, uh, you know, a busy man in his position and he's got a young family. So mm. I don't think someone like him can turn up to everything. And he sent, he sent two marvellous messages um, which we played one of them, but you saw the program, right? We didn't have a lot of time. Uh, and I thought that was very generous. The one thing I'd say, Fred, when I looked at Dom's messages uh, and and uh, and what he said and how he looked and how comfortable he looked feeling it, I just yearned for that man to get in front of the TV and, and give himself over. And, you know, yeah. the, the belief system, I think, that's within Dom hasn't, hasn't We haven't seen that yet. And I think he's got a small window of time to to bring that out in front of the uh, New South Wales population. You know, I really do hope he does because I think intellectually he's one of ours. Well, maybe you can offer him a headline spot for next year, Andrew. Love to. Yeah. <laughs> what are the plans for next year? Just quickly before you go, what are the plans for next year? Uh, look, we're working on the program right now. So uh, it'll be moved to August. Um, we expect to get a couple of congressmen to... Uh, maybe not both men, There's, we're very likely to announce a, uh, a female congresswoman as well uh, coming to Australia. It will be in August. We'll set the date very soon. And uh, we're looking at another great international lineup. We've got, we're pretty sure who's going to get locked in, but we can't release those names yet. Uh, and we're looking for a venue that holds 2,000 people, which we had doubled. And, you know, we, we our stated ambition is to get to 5,000 people at one of these events within five years. I'm absolutely determined to do it. And if I read the room that was there uh, and the attendees, everyone's going to be bringing friends and family along. So uh, I'm absolutely convinced that we'll hit our goal and it may not even take us five years. So, oh, good uh, on you, I'm Andrew. I'm excited, Fred. I hope you're all there too, mate. I'll be there. Good on you, Andrew. Thanks so much. Fred Paul, thanks very much. That's Andrew Cooper, the co-founder and national director of CPAC Australia. And before I go, new British Prime Minister Liz Truss's trustworthiness is now in serious doubt after she reneged on a promise to cut the highest tax rate from 45% to a mere 40%. This was one of the promises she made while campaigning to become Boris Johnson's successor just a month ago. Truss said the decision was practical. Quote, at the end of the day, it became clear that it was a war that wasn't worth fighting, and it was going to be a war. This is depressingly routine in politics these days. The punters support a policy because it's good for them, but when resistance against it arises, 
the politicians entrusted to execute the policy fold like a house of cards. The despair in Britain would be redoubled because tax cuts are almost always a good idea. So not only has an economically stimulating policy been abandoned, but it was also a policy that enabled taxpayers to keep some of their own money. You could almost say the same of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's promise to reduce our power bills by $275 a year, which he too has now admitted is impossible or not worth the effort. The only difference between he and Truss is that if Truss were to cut taxes, she would need to find corresponding cuts in expenditure, which would not be easy. For Albo to cut our power bills, all he needs to do is abandon his suicidal net zero and renewable targets and start generating energy from coal, gas and nuclear instead. That would avoid us having to pay for the rewiring of the power network or for the ridiculous subsidies that, nece that are necessary to make windmills and solar panels financially, financially viable. But that would require him to admit that the climate crisis is a hoax and that his inner city constituents are ill-informed Ill neo-hippies who want to de-industrialise the country. So instead, he's going to force us all to pay crippling power bills and next year freeze in the dark while China's economy steams ahead, powered by our coal. No wonder people are sick of politicians. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for your company. Don't forget to tune back in at 8pm for the great Alan Jones giving a voice to the voiceless here on ADH TV. And I'll see you right after him at nine o'clock. Good night.